0: Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Loli and Barger. Today, I will be speaking with Kevin M. Cruz. He is professor of history at Princeton University and author of One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, published by Basic Books. Cruz argues that the idea that America was officially always a Christian nation dates no further than the 1930s. In opposition to FDR's New Deal, businessmen and religious leaders began to promote freedom under God. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lolly and Barger. Today, I will be speaking with Kevin M. Cruz. He is professor of history at Princeton University and author of One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, published by Basic Books. Cruz argues that the idea that America was officially always a Christian nation dates no further than the 1930s. In opposition to FDR's New Deal, businessmen and religious leaders began to promote freedom under God. The post-war era, fear of the advancement of domestic communism rather than the Cold War, motivated the nation's leaders. In a decisive turn away from the earlier social gospel, establishing a Christian ethos supporting private property Capitalism and individual economic freedom became the political focus. Adding Under God to the Pledge of Allegiance, designating In God We Trust as the official motto of the nation, the conflict-fraught attempt to institute school prayer and Bible distribution in American schools were all forerunners to the Christian right at the end of the century. Cruz's narrative focuses on how American leaders from powerful sectors of the nation sought through legislation Public practice to unify a pluralistic nation under a capitalist affirming Christian framework. The result was not unity, but a more fragmented and divided nation. In the unfolding of his narrative, Cruz challenges the often benign public religious images of men like Billy Graham, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and a multitude of recognizable business leaders. The book opens up a timely conversation on the meaning of religious pluralism and the place of religion in public life. Here's my conversation with Kevin Cruz. Let me introduce you to the author, Kevin Cruz. Kevin, welcome to the show and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me, Lily. Mm-hmm.
0: Your book has a, a lot of eye-opening history that I think is going to be very controversial to a lot of Americans. But before we get into your main, the main points of your book, tell us something about yourself, your background, and how, how you came to write One Nation Under God. Sure. Uh, well,
1: I'm an historian at Princeton University. Um, my first book was a study of uh, what we might call racial conservatism in the South, a book called White Flight. And basically what I did with that book was it was a local study of kind of grassroots politics uh, and the era before White Flight to understand the way in which race affected conservatism uh, in the everyday lives of, of ordinary Americans uh, at, the, at the local level. And so originally I, I started out... Uh, well, after I finished this book, I realized that it was, you know, was only part of the picture of modern conservatism. This is in the mid-2000s, and I, uh, about 2005, and I, uh, the religious right was kind of on the move uh, in national politics at that time, and I, I wanted to understand the role of religion in modern conservatism. So I set out to, uh, in the original version of this book, I was going to look at a variety of communities that made up um, the, the basis of what became the moral majority in the late 70s. So I was going to look at the suburbs of L.A. and San Diego, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Atlanta, Lynchburg, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, a bunch of places like that. Um, but as I dug into uh, the sources I had for this uh, and started to track that story, I realized uh, there was a, an even bigger story that I didn't even suspect was lying behind it. Uh, the, the first thing I got into uh, to researching for that what I, I thought was going to be the original book I was looking at the the fight over school prayer. Traditionally, that's the early first real fight, uh, the fight over school prayer in the early 60s that starts to mobilize religious uh, conservatives. Uh, And as I looked into uh, uh, that issue, uh, I I was going through the papers of Justice Hugo Black, who'd been the Supreme Court justice who decided that decision. And his papers had ten giant boxes filled with angry letters. Uh, written in about the decision, mostly angry, uh, a few in favor, but mostly angry. And what I was struck by was that uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of the letters in Hugo Black's uh, uh, files there uh, basically told him that he was wrong about the First Amendment uh, because uh, isn't our motto "In God We Trust"? Uh, don't we say "One Nation Under God" in our Pledge of Allegiance? We are a religious nation. Uh, these people concluded, and therefore, a state-sponsored school prayer uh, was perfectly fine. Now, this went against everything I'd ever been told before. I'd always been told that uh, phrases like that had no meaning, that they were, in the words of a uh, Yale law school dean, Eugene Rostow, ceremonial deism. They were purely ornamental. Uh, but what I found in those papers was that uh, for these ordinary Americans who I was trying to understand their understanding of religion and politics, uh, those phrases actually meant a great deal. So this was something incredibly confusing. Uh, and as an historian, that's, I think, the moment where you know where you found... What you need to be writing about is when you get baffled in the archives. Uh, And so I was really confused by this. And so I wanted to kind of pull on that thread. So I traced that language uh, first back into the 50s and and thought I had a handle on it there. And then I found some more threads there in the 50s that actually took me back into the 30s. So uh, what had started out to be a project about kind of grassroots religious conservatism uh, in the 60s and 70s and a a few uh, local places uh, eventually became a national story for me, one that stretches from the 30s all the way up to the 70s and, indeed, in the epilogue to the present day. So the, the book changed quite a bit as research did, I researched it, but I I always believe in, uh, you have to follow your sources where they take you.
0: Now, one of the things that you say in your book is that uh, this idea of the freedom under God that in that first chapter that you talk about was really a response to FDR's New Deal. And can you talk a little bit about that? Sure,
1: sure. So this, this, that, that language of freedom under God, which is uh, ultimately becomes the kind of bumper sticker version of this movement of Christian libertarianism that I talk about in the 30s, uh, that comes about, as you say, as a result of this larger fight between corporate America and the New Deal. Uh, so the er- very early days of the New Deal, uh, as, as corporate America is being vilified in the press and, and by politicians like FDR, uh, and more importantly, as they start to feel the pressure of industrial unions empowered uh, by the new deal uh, to strike against them. Uh, they embark on a massive wave of public re- relations spending. Uh, the national association of manufacturers, uh, between 1934 and 1937, uh, increases its PR budget, uh, 22 times over. Uh, so it's an incredible amount of money going into this. Uh, but in these early campaigns, uh, they just make straightforward appeals, uh, for the, the values of free enterprise. Um, Uh, This is uh, just kind of an open tribute uh, to the beauties of capitalism. Uh, The problem is in the mid-30s, in in the wake of the wreckage of the Great Crash, most Americans aren't willing to hear this. Uh, They see this as big business promoting big business. Uh, uh, A lot of uh, major corporations had uh, openly financed these groups, and it was mocked as basically their 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 own PR campaign. There's a great line of uh, Jim Farley, who's the head of the Democratic Party at the time, who says, uh one of these groups, the American Liberty League. Uh they should have called it the American Cellophane League, because number one, it's a DuPont product, and number two, you can see right through it. Mm-hmm. So once uh businessmen realize that they're not getting any return on this investment, this PR campaign, uh they decide they need to um, they need to tweak it a, a bit. Uh, They uh, are very open about this in their public letter, uh, public speeches and the private letters, in which they say, uh, well, we need someone who's trusted. Who is the most trusted um, uh, type of person out there? Polls show it's ministers. So we need to get ministers to make the case for free enterprise for us. Uh, And that's what they do with this uh, group that I I loosely call these these Christian libertarians, these ministers who uh, formulate this language of freedom under God and, and propagate it.
0: Now, James Fifield serves a very important role in this whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about him?
1: Sure. Uh, Fifield is, I think, one of the, uh, a critical figure who's, who's largely been lost to history. Uh, Fifield was the uh, head of a uh, very wealthy uh, church in Los Angeles, a first congregational church. Uh, he had so many uh, you know, rich members of the city in his, uh, in his pews that uh, he was known as the Apostle to Millionaires. Uh, one reporter said his uh, church roster read like the Wall Street Journal, uh, and he's telling these ministers, uh, he's telling these, these members of his congregation, uh, this minister is uh, basically what they want to hear, which is that uh, they're doing God's will, uh, that their wealth is a sign of God's favor, uh, and that any effort to uh, take away what they've uh, what they've earned is uh, is basically a sin. Now, others had had blended uh, capitalism and Christianity before. Uh, but uh, Feinfeld does so in an important new twist. He he presents them not according to their shared social characteristics, which many people have done uh, in in previous uh, decades, even across the century. Uh, Instead, he presents them as uh, political soulmates. So he says both Christianity and capitalism are essentially uh, based on an individualistic ethos. Uh, In capitalism, An individual rises and falls on his own merits. If you're uh, hardworking, you profit. If you're lazy, you go to the poorhouse. Uh, The same way in Christianity. Uh, The holy rise to heaven, uh, the sinners fall to hell. Uh, And any political system that meddles with this divinely prescribed uh, way of doing things, uh, in which capitalism and Christianity are are both on the same page, any political system that meddles with that is, he calls, uh, a form of pagan statism. Uh, And so what they need to to promote, he says in the late 30s and early 40s, is this belief in freedom under God, uh, which is always contrasted to the slavery of the welfare state.
0: Now one thing that you say in this is that this is a a pull away or a reversal of the social gospel of the progressive era. Now the social gospel itself had a whole theology, so it's almost like a battle of theologies here. Uh, It's another side of, of Christian uh, thinking about uh, the social structures and what they should be doing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 uh, Fifield, uh, especially in the magazine he produces, uh, Faith and Freedom, uh, goes after the social gospelers uh, incredibly strong. Uh, and he challenges, uh, not just their uh, political arguments, but their theological basis, too. Uh, he was very... Um, I think you have to be to, to come up with the message he has. He was played kind of fast and loose with the Bible. Uh, he, he makes... No apologies for it. He says, uh, uh, one of his books, um, reading the Bible uh, is like eating fish. Uh, we take the bones out to enjoy the meat. All parts are not of equal value. So he disregards all the kind of things that the social gospelers were latching onto. All of Christ's uh, many uh, teachings about uh, the dangers of wealth, the need to look out for the for the poor, to look out for the least of my brothers, that I am my brother's keeper. All of that he discards. Uh, he says that those points aren't important. Uh, uh, Christianity is instead about uh, the sanctity of the individual, and anything that interferes with individual rights, um, religiously, economically, politically, is in effect an assault on Christianity itself because of that.
0: Now, the social gospel also, uh, I wanted to point out, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, they also uh, believed that America was a Christian nation. They sort of assumed it. They just wanted America to live up to its Christian moral ethic. Uh, it was a different uh, moral ethic as they defined it from this uh new uh you know conservative Christian right, but uh, they were both, I think trying to say that America was fundamentally a Christian nation. They just assumed it all of, both of them did.
1: Well, actually, I would I would even say the social gospelers assumed it more because what the what Feifield and his folks are arguing about is not that really the nation is Christian. In fact, the nation in their minds is pagan. But the American people, they say, are, are Christian uh, and, and have these these Christian beliefs that are natural. The state itself, in their mind, is actually incredibly wicked. But the social gospelers, you're absolutely right. They had always viewed uh, the state as um, as something that it should be doing. Uh, God's will, and so these social welfare programs are an extension of their religion. Uh, uh, they never, um, uh, they never became invested in the nationalistic side of it uh, so much. Uh, you know, kind of the way in which uh, the later parts of my story talk about the creation of, m- of mottos and slogans and, and these rituals uh, that link piety and patriotism. They hadn't done that, but they had. They had, I think you're right, uh, in thought that the government needed to be infused with. At least uh, a vague Christianity.
0: So I think basically in your story here, you've got a situation where it's very difficult to disentangle the politics from religion. Uh, it's sort of always, sort of always, kind of negotiating uh, how that, what that relationship is going to be. Uh, let me ask you about the second chapter that you go on into and you t- begin to talk about Billy Graham, which was a rather eye-opening chapter because there are just some things here that you're uh, quoting Graham of saying that are quite shocking, I think, right. particularly his attitude towards labor. So, if you will uh, talk to me a, a little bit about uh, Graham's beginning points, uh, you know, in the fifties, and. Right, right. Because he, he, he did change over time, but in the 50s, when we're dealing with the period you're dealing with, talk to me about um, about Graham and some of the things that he was espousing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he is very much
1: part of this, we've forgotten about this, but he was very much part in his early years uh, of this Christian libertarian movement. Uh, he comes on the scene uh, as a fresh-faced 30-year-old preacher. Uh, he's incredibly talented, but one of the reasons he catches fire early on is that he has the support very quickly of some of the wealthiest men in the country. Uh, so uh, literally said Richardson, the wealthiest man in America, an oil man, uh, takes him under his wing very quickly uh, in the early 50s. Uh, even before that, uh, conservative uh, publishers uh, like Henry Luce at uh, Life and Time or uh, William uh, Randolph Hearst, uh, the, the newspaper magnate, is the basis for, for Citizen Kane, uh, uh, they embrace him and publicize him widely. Uh, uh, Hearst sends out a telegram to all the newspapers he owns. It simply says, Puff Graham. Uh, in other words, you play him up. Uh, and the reason they do this is because Graham is preaching a message uh, that they like. Uh, this message is, again, this one of Christian libertarianism. He uh, constantly uh, holds up the wealthy as examples of, of good and, more importantly, godly Americans. Uh, but he tears into the labor unions uh, with with kind of surprising uh, glee. Uh, he tells uh, a rally in Greensboro, North Carolina in 1952 that the Garden of Eden will be a paradise with no uh, union dues, no labor leaders, no snakes, and no disease. Uh, He says, no good Christian would ever conspire against his employer by daring to join a union. In fact, he describes the labor unions as as virtually uh, unchurched and unsaved. that They're they're, they're implicitly full of atheists uh, and therefore not good Americans. Uh, So he does um, take these positions so strongly in favor of business, so opposed uh, to the labor unions and any Uh, government uh, action that supports the labor unions. So much so in the early 50s that uh, a London columnist uh, starts to refer to him as the the big business evangelist. That seems to be the message he's preaching most.
0: Right, and this is also connected to theology. I'm very interested in theology, and I think that there's a theology that's running through this uh, because of his individualistic message of individual salvation and conversion. So... He, he's not going to put a lot of any emphasis on any kind of social aspect of salvation, like the social gospel uh, people did. So let's talk about um, his relationship with Eisenhower.
1: Sure. Uh, Eisenhower uh, has uh, actually the same wealthy backer, Sid Richardson, wanted to pay for you know, about a million dollars plus of Eisenhower's 1952 campaign when that meant uh, a great deal of money. Uh, and he puts, uh, he sends Graham over, in fact, to convince Eisenhower to, to run. And he's one of many people who goes to Europe to, to, to lure Eisenhower in. And on the campaign trail in 1962, they're incredibly close. Uh, Eisenhower brings Graham to his campaign headquarters to strategize about speeches. Graham gives him pieces of scripture to quote uh, on the stump, uh, because, uh, Eisenhower believes, as Graham does, that the, the country's in need of, of a major religious revival, and he's determined to bring it. Uh, and he works incredibly closely with him during the campaign and, and with other uh, uh, other groups as well. Spiritual mobilization backs him. Abraham Verde backs him. Uh, the, Scoop the Freedoms Foundation is is critically important. They and the Boy Scouts put 30 million pieces of literature on voters' doors the, the day before uh, the election. Uh, so Graham and all these other uh, uh, ministers are incredibly important in, in helping Eisenhower get elected, and, and once he's in power, he does his best to try to put that religious message uh, uh, into uh, 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 our political culture.
0: So, how has how was Eisenhower? I think you show us Eisenhower as being substantially different from previous presidents in terms of his how his relationship is with religious leaders and what happens in the White House. And you've you've got the National Prayer Breakfast or prayer, or prayer breakfast or prayer meetings in the White House. Talk a little about what was actually going on. What was he doing uh, in the White House?
1: The the contrast, I think, is striking. Again, uh, Roosevelt used religious language. Uh, 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 Harry Truman, right before Eisenhower, is is deeply religious. But but Truman is uh, very much a Baptist of his day and age. He believes firmly uh, in the separation of uh, church and state. Uh, He he doesn't like the idea of public prayer. He's always uh, quoting the uh, the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew in his diary, which uh, calls upon individuals to, to not pray in public as the hypocrites do, but to go into your closet and, and pray in private. So uh, all these public shows of prayer, he, he recoils against. When Graham comes uh, to the Oval Office in of 1950 and, and, and asks uh, Truman if, if he could lead him in prayer, Truman's response is, "Nah, it, it couldn't hurt. Uh, uh, Graham leads him in a, in a, in a prayer, and, and uh, Truman's visibly uncomfortable and, and winds up, uh, after Graham uh, poses for uh, pictures on the White House lawn, winds up banning him from the White House. Uh, with Eisenhower, it's completely different. Eisenhower loved uh, public shows of prayer. Uh, he uh, he believed in their in their importance and power. So when Truman is inaugurated in 1949, he makes an unannounced visit to St. John's Episcopal Church in D.C., surprising the handful of regular parishioners who were there. Uh, on Eisenhower's inauguration day, uh, he makes a formal announcement to his entire cabinet uh, that they all need to go to a church service somewhere, and they are all invited to come with him. Uh, so 150 of them show up uh, to St. John's Episcopal. It had been announced in the press, so the church is entirely few with, full with 800 more people waiting outside in the cold. Um, when Graham comes to the White House, uh, he and he often did uh, in the Eisenhower years, uh, it's as a trusted advisor, uh, it's as a close friend. He becomes uh, the nation's spiritual leader under Eisenhower's watch because Eisenhower uh, works hard to make all of these new religious developments happen. And things we, In the first week of February alone, he gets baptized in the White House. The only president to ever be baptized while he's in office. He gives an Oval Office address to the American Legion's Back to God campaign. He launches the very first presidential prayer breakfast, the national prayer breakfast, which we assume is presidential because Eisenhower and others have followed his suit and been there. And then has uh, the first prayers at a cabinet meeting. Again, all in the first... Week of February, and it just his early days are one of constantly churning out one new religious tradition after another. I mean, it's we talk about Roosevelt's first hundred days of the New Deal and uh, you know establishing the, the welfare state there. Uh, Eisenhower's first hundred days are actually quite momentous too. Uh, and, and instead of having the economy on his mind, he's got this fusion of religion and politics on his mind, and he's incredibly successful at it.
0: Now, the critics of, of what you're saying would say, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, we want our our leaders to have a faith and to express it what, what's what's wrong spe- specifically with this
1: well at the time no one thought anything was wrong because uh, what Eisenhower does is he he takes this religious language and he uncouples it from its its partisan roots and so he he, he uh, all this religious language that these Christian libertarians had motivated and and thought was going to be used to roll back against the New deal uh, he completely separates from that, and so he makes it as non-threatening as possible. Again, it's the ceremonial deism, so it's it's always done with a light touch. Uh, it's always done in a way in which uh, it's not just an old campaign of, of conservative Protestants. Now you've got liberals as well as conservatives. You've got Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, and even occasional nods to Muslims, Buddhists, uh, uh, people outside the so-called uh, uh, three-faiths of democracy as they were none of the time, the, or the Judeo-Christian tradition, another new concept. So in Eisenhower's hands, it's actually incredibly popular. Liberals as well as conservatives are, are fine with this. The civil liberties groups of the age... Don't care at all.
0: This is uh, the, this right there. This that you just mentioned, the Civil Liberties Union, that that they did not uh, protest. This was rather. It, it was late, wasn't it? It was into the '60s before they began to really. Uh, that's right. Protest. That's
1: right. At, at, at the time they see this as you know they hold to the general idea that that holds popular at the time, which is that uh, what the. First Amendment mandates is a separation of church and state, but not a separation of religion and politics. So an embrace of the, the generally sacred is fine. But if one particular sect is getting government endorsement or government money, that's the real problem. The organization that's at the forefront of church-state relations today Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, was during this period known by its original name, which was Protestants and Other Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, because what they were worried about were Catholics getting money for parochial schools, uh, getting taxpayer money for parochial schools. Uh, they didn't really raise many objections to, to this at the time either. It's not until the 60s, it's not until these broad national calls to a vague religious revival has become Uh, rooted in specific local struggles over school prayer, where you can't have a vague God. You've got to have a specific prayer you've said. You can't assign, you can't tell people just pick up whatever Bible you want. You've got to lead students in a particular Bible. And is it the King James Version? Is it a Catholic Bible? Is it uh, a Hebrew Bible? So there are, you have to at that level pick one of these faiths rather than have a kind of a generic mush. And at that level, uh, suddenly becomes divisive because you people are picking sides.
0: Right. So basically, the kind of religion that Eisenhower was promoting was sort of a kind of lowest common denominator that uh, faithful people, people who are very faithful to their particular religious tradition, could would very much object to because uh, it was all sort of general, vague uh, invocations of God.
1: That's absolutely right. And that that was one of the things that surprised me most. I mean it makes sense if you if you just if you if you kind of read their arguments, but I had gone in assuming that the the fight over this public religion will be one that would fit with the terms we kind of expect today, which is that it's going be atheists and agnostics and and generally kind of people who you might describe as the secular left will be objecting to this. Uh, and all religious people will be on the other side defending it. What I found in the uh and it comes out very clear in the in the fight over a school prayer amendment in the mid sixties is that it was actually the, the deeply religious, as you know, who are often leading the charge against uh, this kind of public religion uh, because they take their faith so seriously. They don't want this one-size-fits-all, watered-down public faith. Uh, you know, a, 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 someone who's a Baptist minister is a Baptist uh, because they believe in that faith tradition. A, a Catholic priest believes in Catholicism. A, a rabbi believes in a form of Judaism. Uh, they all have their own particular tendency. So they don't want to kind of... Again, it's lowest common denominator. I, I joke, it's uh, lowest common denomination, uh, 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 ideology. Uh, they, they want the particular details that animate their particular faith. Uh, they don't want this kind of mushy, watered down prayer. In fact, I found out when the school prayer decision, uh, uh, comes down in 1962, people I thought who would have been outraged, uh, weren't. So evangelicals and fundamentalists, <coughs> excuse me, uh, largely don't care about this. Uh, the fundamentalists say uh, it was a prayer that just mentioned Almighty God. If it doesn't mention Jesus Christ, it's not a prayer. So, right. So we don't care.
0: So the the other thing, too, was this move was also uh, to make things explicit, such as in the Pledge of Allegiance, adding um, God to the Pledge of Allegiance, making uh, In God We Trust the motto the argument was uh, this stuff was already in our history, but we needed to make it explicit. So, talk a little bit about how, uh, some of those different ways that uh, religion uh, was, you know, imp- was introduced mm-hmm. to public life.
1: Uh, well, uh, there's this argument, and it, it comes forward, I think, most clearly in the book when I when I talk about the, the fight for what had been known as the, the Christian Amendment. Which was a, a, a long-standing campaign that went back in the 19th century. They have an amendment added to the Constitution that declared that uh, the United States government was bound to the law and authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, and in the arguments over this, which happened, uh, it comes up before the Senate in 1954 again. Uh, there's a, a minister who's leading the, the move who says, "All we're trying to do is get our our unwritten Constitution." Uh, into the public eye. And, but it's unwritten constitution. He meant this. We've always had a vague sense that religion was part of this nation, that we were a Christian nation. Um, regardless of whatever the founders said, uh, on this point, uh, he, they said that they made a mistake. Uh, and we need to get this unwritten constitution, uh, uh, our, we need to get our written constitution to look like the unwritten one. And to do that, we need to, uh, add in this, uh, respect for Jesus. Uh, the problem with that argument is that it, it acknowledges that the founders, uh, and the succeeding generations uh, didn't want this at all, that uh, they didn't want uh, uh, religion and politics. You know, <clears throat> For all the invocations of the Declaration of Independence and uh, a call for uh, rights established by the Creator, the, the Constitution, which actually you know, uh, enumerates those rights and, and enshrines them and protects them, makes no mention of God. Uh, it's only in the, da- the date in the year of our Lord. All the mentions of religion keep... Uh, the state at arm's length from faith. No religious test for office holders. No nationally established religion. No interference with the free exercise of religion. Uh, The Treaty of Tripoli in 1797 is even more explicit than this. A treaty uh, begun by Washington, uh, signed by John Adams, perhaps the most religious of all the founding fathers, and ratified unanimously by a voice vote of a Senate that was still half-filled with signers of the Constitution. The Treaty of Tripoli says quite explicitly, uh, the government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian religion. So uh, these people who are trying to argue that America always had been a Christian nation have uh, an uphill uh, road to climb. So what you get in the uh, in the 50s is a campaign to try to make it seem, in effect, that the nation had always been this way. Uh, and it's done by uh, really rewriting uh, these touchstones of national identity. The so things that hadn't seemed that important before uh, quickly become uh, vital. And again, this is where I think <clears throat> legal scholars have made a mistake in thinking that this is just ceremonial, I and mean, I mean, it's ornamental. I think these things like the Pledge of Allegiance, the motto, they speak deeply to, to who uh, we think we are as a country, or perhaps who we, who we think we ought to be. Uh, and so things like the Pledge of Allegiance, which had been um, secular since its creation in the, uh, in the 1890s, uh, gets under God added to it. A national motto, which uh, there had never actually been a, an official national motto. It would have been assumed that was whatever was on our our seal was a national motto, which many people took to be e pluribus unum. Um, there's a campaign to make it in God we trust, uh, which succeeds uh, in 1956. So with these touchstones in place, uh, with these uh, these phrases kind of winding their way into uh, the lives of ordinary Americans in countless ways, Uh, they finally do succeed in making it seem like the country had been this way all along. I think if you were to ask people today if America is a Christian nation, the ones who say yes, would point to things like those phrases as as kind of an ironclad proof. And many of them assume that these phrases go back to the founding. They don't.
0: And so in the middle of all this, you've got, this is all backing um, a capitalist economic system. So you've got vested interest, uh, corporate vested interest in this. And there's some big names. You named some amazing names in, in uh, you know, the, the the corporate leaders who were supporting all this sort of stuff. Um, and then they began an advertising campaign. Right. That was interesting. Uh, talk about that a little bit. What was the yeah, nature the ad- of it? Yeah, what was the nature of the yeah. advertising campaign?
1: The advertising campaign comes about from uh, from the ad council. And the Ad Council was formed during World War II as a way, again, it's much like these business leaders in the 30s feeling that the New Deal has made them irrelevant. Uh, The Ad Council was formed as a way for advertising to to punch back against government regulation uh, and to make it seem like they're doing something useful for society. Uh, Their early campaigns are are largely, again, about uh, um, the wonders of, of capitalism, and then in 1949, they start this uh, amazing program called Religion in American Life. Uh, and again, the, the corporate sponsors, the head of this is uh, a Charlie Wilson at General Electric, uh, a guy from Union Carbide, this is his number two man. Uh, corporate uh, leaders uh, in the, in the in industry are, uh, are really at the forefront of this effort. And the goal of Religion in American Life was to, was to boost attendance uh, at churches and synagogues. And so they sold religious attendance uh, as a solution to life's life ills, and, and you know, just like uh, you know, any advertising man on on, on Mad Men or, or or in real life, uh, who's you know trying to sell a toothpaste or mouthwash or whatever as a way to improve uh, someone's you know personal happiness, they sell religion in the same way that it'll 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 solve your problems. But in sending this message out, they're also sending out a message that. The reason you should do this is because this is what America is all about. Uh, and if you want to be a good good American, uh, uh, you know, it won't just be a good consumer; you'll be a good Christian, uh, and 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 that is the key to uh, 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 understanding the country is to understand that it's religious. So this this very seemingly um, friendly and open, but 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 massive. I mean, just a massive campaign. The the, the amount of literature that gets put out in terms of Newspaper ads, magazine ads, posters on railways, subways, billboards on the highway i mean they make it sound like it's if you read some of their literature about how pervasive their message is, it also almost seems like a dystopian future where you can 't get away from this this drumbeat about religion. Uh, they brag about it that they've've uh, they've made this message inescapable and i think it's it 's one of the things that is crucial to promoting this religious revival. In fact, they take credit. Uh, 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 I exaggerate, but they take credit for the giant boost in church attendance that comes as about of this massive campaign calling for a boost in church attendance.
0: And it wasn't just uh, advertising, it was also film. That's right. You talk about it, different filmmakers and what they were doing. Uh, talk. Yeah.
1: So Cecil B. DeMille, uh, the legendary director Cecil B. DeMille, is an active supporter of, uh, of James Fifield, that minister who was behind um, spiritual mobilization. Again, he had helped coordinate the, the national radio special. He did, uh, And he had served on the committee uh, uh, that sponsored it, the Committee to Proclaim Liberty. Uh, less than a year later, uh, after being involved in that, um, uh, DeMille announces that he's going to uh, make a movie uh, of the Ten Commandments. He's actually going to remake it. He'd made uh, one about uh, 30 years before. Uh, but he, he decided that the themes were important enough, he said, to our time uh, that we uh, he wanted to revisit it. And he talks about the film very publicly, uh, using this language, uh, freedom under God. Uh, he says, you know, this story about Moses and Ramses the uh, Second is one we're living today. Uh, will men live under the tyranny of a state, or will they be free souls under God? Uh, uh, he even has, you know, he has uh, uh, has to give. Bits of Moses' dialogue back to Fifield's congregation in Los Angeles. It's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, but for this film, which is, which is one of the biggest films of all time, certainly the biggest film of the 50s, uh, a major blockbuster, is in many ways uh, a way to popularize uh, the message of this, uh, of this Christian libertarian movement. Um, uh, and its, its legacy lives with us today. Uh, one of the things that Americans um, fight over when they think about church and state today are these Ten Commandment monuments. Well, as I discovered in uh, researching this book, uh, the original Ten Commandments monuments that are across the country, in fact, some of the ones that actually we had lawsuits over uh, about a decade ago, were actually part of a promotional campaign uh, for the Ten Commandments movie. Uh, DeMille works with a a group called the Fraternal Order of Eagles to, to erect these across the country. Uh, These giant, uh, 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 he even gives them a a sample of Mount Sinai granite so they can find a a local uh, stone that looks like it. Uh, He helps it with a design. Uh, They promote them across the country, uh, some in in private places but many in in public places. The cornerstone of the Milwaukee City Hall, for instance, is is one of these. sends out Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner, stars of the film, to help dedicate these stone monuments. Um, uh, And so we've forgotten that, that one of these, touchstones of, of contemporary struggles over church and state is actually part of a PR campaign uh, for an old Charlton Heston movie.
0: That's that's rather humorous, but I wanted to ask you, you know, chapter six is sort of the turning point in your book, and this is when you've got the Gideon campaign of placing Bibles in schools right. and the prayers in schools, and the schools become sort of a Probably, sort of the breaking point of this onward and upward uh, movement, because they're getting lots of there's a lot of victories, and then they run into some obstacles with this, among you know Jews and Catholics and other people who are objecting to b- Bibles and prayers in schools, and it's not like you said it's not atheists or people who are who are hostile to religion, it's actually people who are very uh, devoted. That's right. So. What were the Gideons trying to do? And, uh, and it, they they seem sort of like innocent. Uh, they were they seem to me as innocent victims of the times. Uh, I'm sure in their own mind they were trying to do something good, but um, they were getting into uh, stepping on a lot of toes trying to do it.
1: Yeah, they, they, I, th- I think they absolutely meant well. Um, uh, they were they saw this as a, as a public service. They believe that um, uh, they you know needed to bring the word of God to uh, to people who hadn't seen it before. This is why they're so intent on. Um, um, putting Gideon Bibles even to this uh, very day in hotel rooms. Uh, they had a campaign here, a campaign that I should say was was alive and well when I was uh, in school, um, uh, growing up in the, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, we used to get these Gideon Bibles as well. Uh, and they saw it as a way to, to again, to, to reach young people before they ran into trouble to make sure that they that they knew the Word of God. Uh, the problem is, is that what they're doing is they're, uh, essentially promoting a, uh, an abridged version of the King James Bible. Uh, and, uh, for Catholics, uh, at this time, uh, reading the King James Bible, uh, is, is a sin. Uh, and, and, and you'll see, uh, uh, Jewish students aren't crazy about, uh, receiving, uh, a copy of the New Testament either, uh, in, in any form. So you have, uh, uh, the parents of the Catholics and Jews, people who, again, take their own personal religion very seriously push back against this because they see this as an unwanted form of, of, of proselytizing uh, in the public schools, and that this simply can't be the place. In fact, many people who are otherwise sympathetic to the Gideons' efforts, especially in that in kind of the hotel campaigns, say that this is a line they shouldn't have crossed. That that that, that Protestants need to respect the belief of religious minorities like Catholics uh, and, and Jews at this time, and they and they they really should have thought this
0: through. And then the prayer, you talk a lot about the prayer, and it's that watering down again. What is going to be in the prayer? Uh, is it a moment of silence? Is it an actual prayer? And uh, what does it include? What does it exclude? And, you know, there's a huge battle among people who are believing people about what the prayer should say. And I think that that is one of the most interesting parts of your story is that this was not, you know, atheist agnostics raging a battle. Um, and I think that that's that's very interesting. Now, the next chapter, you talk about our so-called religious leaders, how lay people really sort of revolted against what they saw their leaders doing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, and that, that process comes about in that uh, that fight over the school prayer amendment, which um, you know we've forgotten about. It, it, it's it's a moment in the in the '60s that uh, I think needs more attention. Because uh, people at the time were certainly focused on it. If we're going to be honest about what did people at the time care about, they cared about the school prayer amendment. Uh, during the 1963-1964 term, uh, a term which Congress was debating a number of major issues, including the legendary Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, they received more mail on the school prayer amendment than they did on any other issue. It, it was it was dominating uh, uh, congressional offices, and it seemed like it was quite likely to pass because. Ordinary Americans were had been kind of stunned by the school prayer decision, and thought they wanted it back. It was pulling incredibly strong. Congress people were scrambling over one another to. to there are more than a hundred amendments get offered, uh, uh, versions of these, this amendment get, get offered before the House. It seems like it's incredibly likely to pass. And then, religious leaders start to speak out against it uh, because they don't want uh the fights at the local level over over what kind of prayer we're we going to have over what form of the bible we're we going to teach uh but they also don't want the state to usurp this role that's theirs religious instruction is our duty uh clergymen say uh, you know we want to instruct our children in the particular tenets of our faith uh we can handle that better than you can in the classroom because you're going to have to be respectful for all the, the broad uh, range of religions that are going to be in that classroom and you're not going to be able to teach anything effectively in fact you're going to teach against our purpose we're going to argue that, that the Baptist way is the right way or the Catholic way is the right way and if you're arguing that there's sort of a vague in between that encompasses all of this that actually hurts us so these religious leaders um, fight back incredibly strongly in Congress uh, and, and they're the key uh, to stopping this school prayer amendment which seemed a certainty passed uh, and in early '64, uh, by the summer, it's effectively dead in the water because these religious leaders have come out against it.
0: Now, this amendment is at the, the Becker amendment, if I remember correctly. That's right. Uh, what what it was the, what did it say? What was the actual wording of the amendment?
1: Oh, the Becker amendment. Uh, it's there are a bunch of, uh, of, of versions that come about. Uh, what it ultimately comes down to. Uh, let me see text.
0: Well, if you can just paraphrase uh, what it was saying. Yeah, it,
1: it, 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 the, in the eyes of the Becker Amendment um, of backers, it, it, it calls for making uh, the recitation of prayer or Bible reading in any public building uh, will now be sanctioned. And then they say, uh, this does not violate the First Amendment. Uh, there's, there's a section in there that very explicitly says that. Uh, uh, so if you had thought that was violated the First Amendment, you're immediately wrong because of the uh, uh, of this, this qualifying phrase. Uh, and they thought it was very, uh, the proponents of this tried to make it as narrow as possible. Uh, what happens is that legal scholars and then religious leaders argue that what this amendment will do won't be uh, a slight tweak of the First Amendment. It will effectively replace the First Amendment because it will open all sorts of public spaces to all sorts of religion. Uh, and that is going to radically change the balance. Uh, but, uh, that uh, that have been in place since the uh, since the founding, uh, and religious leaders uh, speak out strongly against this. They, they make this move for school prayer. Ultimately, they present it as an attack on their own religious liberties. They don't want the state involved in this in any level. They say,
0: which is, I think, a story that a lot of Americans don't really realize right now, uh, because the the narrative that has been held out is that school prayers was was taken out of the schools by atheists and humanists and agnostics and that is the story that I think still remains why is that do you think why is it that we still um, imagine that it was humanists who took God out of the schools
1: I think they do that but uh, we still believe that because many of the people who oppose the decision frame it that way Uh, so the the plaintiffs in, uh, in, in the school prayer decision, are uh, 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 mostly Jews. Uh, the plaintiff in the uh, Bible reading decision is uh, the, the one that's named, is a Unitarian family. Uh, and and all, all of them are deeply religious. Uh, what happens is the opponent sees upon uh, a person involved in those cases uh, who uh, the court had deliberately tried to sideline, and that's uh, Madeline Murray. And later known as Madeline Murray O'Hare. And she is an outspoken atheist. Uh, but in coming up with the, the decisions, the court knew that have, if they had made the case be one of an atheist striking-down uh, Bible reading in the, in the schools, that the decision would play even worse than it actually played. Uh, so um, uh, the justice who writes that decision, Tom Clark, is a devout Presbyterian who's picked by Earl Warren precisely because he's so well-known uh, as a devout Christian, uh, when he writes the case, he deliberately sidelines uh, Madeline Murray. Uh, she should have been uh, the name of the case, because her case was on the docket first. He instead makes it this Unitarian family, the Shemps, their case in Pennsylvania. Uh, he, In fact, in his first draft, he makes no mention uh, of, of Murray, uh, and definitely not her atheism. He uh, does all he can to, to kind of to, to sideline her. Uh, But again, opponents pick up on this because they can't quite wrap their heads around the idea that a religious person wouldn't want public religion. Uh, And so they seize upon this idea that this was all an atheist campaign. This was all uh, a campaign of humanists. Again, Frank Becker, behind the Becker Amendment, is constantly talking about humanist associations and atheist associations who are opposing him on this, never acknowledging uh, the massive numbers of, of people who were deeply religious who this, So I think this belief we have today that it's only atheists uh, whoever opposed this or brought this about uh, is one that is, is actually um, uh, uh, a construct of, 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 uh, of the opponents of this. You always say that you know, history is written by the winners. In this case, part of history I think was written by the losers. Uh, they, they effectively reshaped our understanding of what happened here by constantly repeating that this is all the work of atheists and humanists.
0: Now... Um... You talk in chapter in your last chapter about how this political uh, agenda really became a cultural battle and I and you're suggesting that it that it was sort of the beginning of the culture wars you're also suggesting that these are this is the seed of the new right that we're gonna see in the late 20th century. Um, can you unpack that a little bit
1: Sure. Uh- so in many ways, I'd say both of those strands are true. So, so the, the the last chapter follows really what Nixon does with this in terms of, of deeply politicizing it. And Nixon tried to do what Eisenhower had done so successfully with the fusion of piety and patriotism, but Nixon does it in a very hand handed way. Eisenhower had succeeded in bringing Americans together. Nixon, partly through the climate of the time, the Vietnam War, but partly also through I think to his his personality. I wind up making this much more of a polarizing issue. Um, so he, he amplifies the public religion. He has Billy Graham and other ministers giving church services literally inside the White House, something that had never happened or rarely happened before, uh, now on a regular basis. Uh, and he uh, he brings that religion uh, back into into real prominence, but in a way that it's tied not to the country as a whole, but to the to the right. So uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, this fusion of patriotism is now something that has taken root on the right. And, and, and in this moment, you see the early rumblings, to go back to our, our early conversation about where I thought this book was going to uh, originally focus, you see the early rumblings of those things I talked about. So outrage over school prayer, outrage over opposition to the war, over social liberalism in general, over uh, later on uh, abortion and gay rights, uh, sexuality in general—all these things are starting to surface up, uh, and they're seen as being uh, a challenge, a danger uh, to this uh, uh, this nation under God as it had been constructed. Uh, at the same time, that libertarian emphasis um, uh, obviously starts to come back in uh, for modern conservatives. Um, it was largely devoid of the of the religious angle. We'd often talked about you know, kind of the Reagan Revolution being a way in which libertarians. Uh, on one side and uh, religious conservatives on the other um, came together and they were strange bedfellows. Well, this book shows uh, they've actually been together for quite a long time. Uh, Their relationship has constantly evolved and now we're seeing some of the political arguments that I talk about in the book in the 30s about how corporation can have religious values and those values can be used to shield it from the regulatory state. Uh, these things are now being accepted by the courts. We saw this in the Hobby Lobby decision and uh, in, uh, in other cases. So. Uh, it's taking on a new, uh, new power today. Uh, uh, but the, but the, it's a story that's, that's still, I think, unfolding. It hasn't come to rest.
0: So what's the takeaway from your book? What do you want the readers to get out of this book?
1: Well, I want them to get out uh, a couple things. Uh, one, uh, at, at a basic level, I'd like for them to, to think that these things that we take for granted matter. So Under God and the Pledge, and um, uh, God We Trust, The National Day of Prayer, the National Prayer Breakfast, all these things that have kind of become, uh, background uh, noise, uh, I, I think really is uh, something we need to, uh, uh, pay more attention to. um uh, we don't have to uh, uh, agree with, uh, 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 the motives of the people who created them, but I think we need to at least be aware of them too. So, uh, the second one would be that, uh, I want people to know that, that these things actually have a history that matters. Um, uh, and then what that history is, I think, is also important. I, again, coming into this, I'd always assumed um, uh, basically the, the the argument that uh, all this religious language uh, did come about in the 50s, but it was solely Cold War propaganda. It was just a little bit of uh, 1950s culture that, uh, that was kind of frozen in time that we still live with. Uh, but it was all about the Cold War. I, I want people to know that it actually was more about of domestic politics—that um, uh, it was uh, 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 not a story about uh, Americans against the Soviet Union, but rather a story of Americans wrestling um, with their own identity, and in fact uh, fighting with each other.
0: Do you uh, more general question? Do you do you think that we can really uh, separate uh, religions from politics uh, in, in, a way, in an effective way? And, or do you think that that is just something that we have to live with, that tension that's constantly going to be there and it's going to show up in totally different ways? Uh, I think we've seen that in the 20th century, starting with the social gospel and now with, you know, and then the Christian right at the end of the century. Do you think that this is a, a, something that we're just never going to be able to escape?
1: I think, I think it's probably an essential part of the country's character. Uh, I think whether or not, uh, You think of America as a a nation of Christians or a nation of believers. It is still um, uh, overwhelmingly that. Um, uh, You know, we've seen the recent uh, Pew Religion uh, uh, poll shows that the number of 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 nuns are uh, n o n e s uh, are on the are on the rise, Uh, and that's certainly a trend. But but the country is still seventy percent more than that uh, Christian. Uh, So this is still something that I think is deeply. Uh, went it into the, the character of the people. and They've they come to expect these sort of things. Um, now, um, it could well be that uh, uh, challenges arise to these, these mottos and the courts finally actually allow them to be heard. Uh, they could fall away. Under God could be taken out of the pledge and the motto could be changed. Sure. Uh, but even if that happens, I think what we would then revert to would be a, a state that existed really before the 50s which is, this, again, this, this idea that uh, maybe you know, we need to keep church and state more um, rigidly separate. But religion and politics will always, uh, I think, blend together to, to some degree. Not for everyone, but for many Americans, the religious values, and I'm talking here on the left and the right, the religious values inform what they believe uh, at a basic level. Uh, and as they move those beliefs into politics, everyone from Martin Luther King with the Civil Rights Movement to Jerry Falwell with the Moral Majority, whatever their manifestations of those are, I think we can't deny that religious beliefs somehow motivated those. Um, but the question is, what do we as a nation uh, say about the formal structures of the nation? Um, uh, what individual people bring into them uh, is one thing, but uh, whether or not uh, the nation itself proclaims that it's a space that is religiously marked is, is something rather different.
0: So you've been very generous with your time, and I wanted to ask you another question, which is what are you working on now? What's your next project? Are you going to build on this?
1: Uh, a little bit, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up uh, a textbook uh, I'm doing with uh, Julian Zelzer on U.S. history since 1974, uh, which uh, covers some of this later period. And then my next book, it'll be one of two things. Uh, one would be one that would very much continue off this project, which would be a study of the culture wars. Uh, the, the kind of the fight over uh, obscenity, pornography, uh, uh, politics, and the law in the 80s and 90s, um, which which uh, which a lot of these uh, this mixture of religion and politics comes back. Uh, the other one would be something that would um, go off this project in a different way. Uh, it would really be kind of an expansion of the of the Supreme Court chapter in here, uh, and I would look at uh, a kind of group political biography of the Warren Court. Uh, it's kind of a fascinating mix. Of characters there you know, you've got uh, yeah, Hugo Black a former Klansman uh, uh, you know eventually working alongside Thurgood Marshall an NAACP attorney you've got countless kind of odd pairings like that uh, so to think about what's going on at the court uh, during the 60s I think would be know, another fascinating project uh, but I, uh, this one is still hot off the presses I haven't committed to the, the next one uh, uh, totally yet
0: Thank you, Kevin, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. I would enjoy hearing from you. Please drop me a line at newbooks.americastudies at gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.